Our scripture reading for this morning is uh, Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. So please turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, that'll be our sermon text for this morning, Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. And uh, before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that as we come to your word, we pray that we would hear from you. We pray that you, by your spirit, would speak to us, would teach us, would guide us, would lead us, would challenge us, would rebuke us, would encourage us, would point us to your grace. Uh, show us clearly your Son, Jesus. Help us to see him in all of his glory and to be, uh, to be overawed uh, by him, by his glory, by his grace. Uh, Father, teach us now. Fill us with your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning with verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What makes you a good person? I'd like to believe that, that most people want to be good people. Uh, now, that takes about every ounce of optimism that I have, but I do. I, I believe that most people want to be good people. Uh, the evidence of that, oddly enough, is that people lie when they do bad things. You see, if we didn't care about being seen as good people, we wouldn't lie when we do bad things. Uh, we wouldn't try to sweep things under the rug or, or justify or, our behavior or make excuses if we didn't want to be seen as good people people. Uh, but we do. Uh, most people want to be good people. The, the biblical explanation of that is twofold. The first is that we have a conscience. And when we do wrong, our conscience accuses us so that when we do wrong, unless something has gone wrong with our conscience, we know we've done wrong. We want to be good people because we don't want our conscience to bear witness against us. We don't want to live under the tyranny of guilt. Second, we want to be good people because we live before the face of God. 
You know, old theologians talked about this as living quorum Deo, before God. Uh, we live in the presence of God every moment of every day. And I would say our conscience is actually little more than our consciousness of a holy God. And when we go against conscience and it bears witness against us, it is the recognition both that we have not lived up to the example of God and more relationally than that, have come under the displeasure of God. And so wanting to avoid a guilty conscience and the displeasure of God, most people strive to be good people on some level. Now, there may be some of you listening who think, I don't really care about being a good person. I just, I just want to live my life. And maybe that's true. I, I think you're probably in denial, actually. Often when people say things like that, I just want to live my life, uh, they add something like, I'm not trying to hurt anybody, which shows that they don't just want to live their life, right? They, they also want to live life well, at least well enough not to hurt anyone. We do have a name in our culture for people who really don't care about being a good person. Uh, the name that we give uh, those people are sociopaths. Uh, but the rest of us, hopefully, the rest of us, right, are striving to be good people. Which brings us back to our initial question, what makes you a good person? The book of Hebrews talks about this idea of being a good person in terms of drawing near to God. Uh, we might put it like this, who has a right to draw near to God. Who is good enough? Uh, the writer is talking about this because he wants us to draw near. He, he wants us to have intimate fellowship with the living God, both now and for eternity. He wants us to draw near. And you might wonder, well, wait a minute, if we're always living in the presence of God, what does it mean to draw near? <laughs> Which is a good question, but you can, you can imagine a, a couple who lives together, right? And, uh, but as we say, the, the spark has gone out of the relationship. And oh, oh, sure, they still live together, eat together, work together, sleep together. But there's no intimacy, no nearness. There's physical proximity, but no emotional proximity. You see, living in the presence of God, as we all do every moment, does not mean that you are close to Him. The writer of Hebrews wants us to draw near. Together with hope, which I mentioned last week, this is one of the main themes of the book. In fact, the two themes go together. We need a hope, a, a confidence, an assurance that enables us to draw near. And so the writer says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 7, 19, the, the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope has been introduced through which we draw near to God. Hebrews 10, 22, uh, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. See, the writer wants us to draw near to God, to have the, the hope, the confidence necessary to draw near to our Father. And the Bible, uh, from the beginning, uh, from beginning to end, is, is really a story of, of nearness and distance. Uh, Adam and Eve dwelt with God in the garden. That, that's nearness. But because of their sin, they were cast out, distance. God met with Israel in the promised land, in the temple, nearness. But only the priests could enter the holy place. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And that only once per year. Most people were held at arm's length, distance. Eventually, Israel was cast out of the promised land. The temple was destroyed, even more distance. 
But then Jesus comes as God in the flesh, nearness. And yet after his crucifixion, he returns to heaven, distance. At Pentecost, he sends his spirit to indwell the church, nearness. But we still await Christ's return when we will see him face to face, which is distance in anticipation of nearness. And the, the question, though, that we uh, want to ask this morning is, who can be close to God right now? The Old Testament gives a, a clear and simple answer to that question. Psalm 24, uh, who will ascend? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? That is, who can come into God's presence? Who can draw near? And then the psalmist answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. But we're going to look at a few other answers to that question this morning, uh, both the answers that we give and the answer that the book of Hebrews gives. And so who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who, who can draw near? Why can you draw near? Uh, we're going to look at three answers to that question. Why? Uh, some say because I'm doing the right things. And others say, because my heart is in the right place. And then the book of Hebrews will tell us, because I'm holy in Jesus. So why can you draw near? Some, some say, because I'm, I'm doing the right things. Uh, lots of people think that the way to be right with God is to do the right things. And it makes sense, of course, because even, even the psalm that we just read, Psalm 24, could be used to say that. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. Sometimes people think that they're right with God because of what they do. And, you know, Christians call being right with God being righteous, right? And we seek righteousness in a whole host of things. Some seek it in morality. I can, I can keep certain rules. Some seek it in religion. I, I perform certain duties. Some seek it in accomplishment, right? I've done so much in this or that area of life. And um, we, whatever it is that we might be doing, we gain this sense of value from the things that we do. If you ask what makes you a good person or what gives you the right to draw near to God, we, we could say, well, look at these things I've done. I, I obey the rules. I've paid my dues. And some people in Israel thought this way. You see, God had given Israel a religious system, sometimes called the sacrificial system or the, the law, especially the ceremonial law. And some thought that by using that system, they could be right with God. If they only worked the system, they were righteous. But you see, that was never, never true. That's not why God gave the system in the first place. Uh, look at verse 1 in our text. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See, this legal system was but a shadow meaning it pointed forward to some greater reality to come. It pointed to the true source of righteousness, but it was not the source of righteousness. And so the writer says the law can never, through the old covenant sacrifices, make perfect those who draw near. Uh, now the word perfect there means uh, both less and more than we 
often think of that word meaning. It, it, it's not about being a perfectionist. It doesn't mean that, but, but it's more than moral perfection. Uh, the, the word itself actually doesn't have moral connotations. It just means to be mature, to be complete, to be whole. The idea, of course, in part in Scripture is that human beings are, are broken. We, ha- we are not what we were meant to be. We have never achieved our full maturity as a race. We, have never, we, we, we never became all that God created us to be. And the law, the Mosaic law, that is the, the law that Moses gave, could not bring that about. It was a mere shadow of something else to come. And the writer proves his point about the powerlessness of the law by an argument in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, Otherwise, right, the law can't make perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, those sacrifices, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? See, if the Old Testament sacrifices truly removed sin and made us whole, People wouldn't have to offer them day after day and year after year. Because once sin was removed, you wouldn't need another sacrifice. Their their impotency is demonstrated in their frequency. You know, if you keep having to call back the plumber again and again, maybe something more needs to be done than calling the plumber one more time. Maybe there's a deeper problem, right? And this is what's going on in Israel. They, They keep going back to the sacrifices again and again and again. Maybe there was a deeper problem, something that those sacrifices could not handle. And you get the point, right? The the repetition of a thing often shows its failure to do the job that really needs to be done. And Hebrews specifically says, if the sacrifices worked, you would no longer have any consciousness of sins, meaning your Conscience would not bear witness against you. You would would know your guilt has been dealt with. The sacrifice has been made and you wouldn't need to return to them day after day, year after year. But actually the sacrifices could not and were not supposed to remove sins. According to verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. One of the functions of those sacrifices was actually verse 3 to be a reminder of sins. Paul says something similar about the Old Testament law in general. In Romans, says it, Romans uh, chapter 7, he says the law cannot make us holy. In fact, it shows us how sinful we really are. See, laws and rules and sacrifices cannot make us holy. In fact, they just demonstrate how unholy we really are. And think about this for a minute, right? If, if the one God-given system in history for, for dealing with sin cannot take away sin, what makes you think that your system will work any better? Your system of removing your sin, whether that is church attendance or giving to the poor or pursuing social justice or self-enlightenment or behavior modification or just trying to be nice people or whatever it is, right? If God's system could not take away sin, your system cannot do any better. You can't buy off God. You you can't just put in your dues and hope he'll let you slide. You can't bribe him with a few good deeds here or there, or a few religious deeds here or there. You can't donate your way into heaven. God doesn't want a system for taking away sin. He wants obedience. Not obedience here and there to, to pay your spiritual dues and move on with your life, but whole life obedience. 
And we want to loosen the restrictions a little, right? Lessen the requirements, get it down to a short list of do's and don'ts. But God wants all of us. We tend to see this as overly strict. But the truth is, it just means that God wants you. He, he wants you to walk with Him. God wants you as His bride, and He will tolerate no other lovers. I mean, what would you say to a husband who, who sleeps around and then tries to buy his wife's affection with jewelry or fancy clothes? But that's what we do with God. We, we pursue created things as if they were our God, as if they could satisfy, and then we throw God a religious or moral bone in the hopes that it will quell his jealous anger. Why can you draw near? Some say, because I'm doing the right things. Look at these things I'm doing. But systems of sacrifice, whether religious or secular, cannot take away sin or make you right with God. Now, others say, well, it's, it's, because, it's because my heart is in the right place. Have you ever heard somebody say this, right? Often they say it about other people. Uh, they'll say things like, oh, his heart's in the right place. And normally they say it after discussing some poor decision the person made, uh, maybe even some immoral decision the person made. Oh, oh she means well. And we, we, we saw uh, the heart, though, also in Psalm 24, which we read earlier. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. A pure heart is, uh, the pure in heart shall see God, Jesus said, after all. And so maybe we think it's not about doing things at all. Maybe it's just about, about my heart being in the right place. And it's true that, that one of the reasons the prophets railed against Israel was they went through the motions of the sacrificial system, but their hearts were not in the right place. Isaiah 29, God says, This people draw near with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But you know, while, while we can't say, well, it's, it's just my actions and it doesn't matter where my heart is, we, we can't turn it around either. Some people want to do that. They say, well, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do as long as your heart is in the right place. Sacrifices, uh, that's irrelevant, right? That, that kind of religious stuff, right? Just it's, it's the heart is all that matters. But notice what verses 5 through 7 say. Verses 5 through 7, consequently, when Christ came into the world... He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is an example from, from Psalm 40. This is what the writer of Hebrews quotes is Psalm 40. It's an example of a general principle found elsewhere in Scripture that to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, that principle is first found in uh, 1 Samuel when Saul is commanded by God to slaughter certain animals, but instead, of, instead he saves them to sacrifice them to God. And, but Samuel rebukes him saying, to obey is better than sacrifice. Do what God told you to do, essentially. And, and here's what I want you to see at the moment. Uh, God doesn't say to feel is better than sacrifice. Or in Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10, it doesn't say sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but hearts that are in the right place. God is not contrasting religious observance with a right heart. That, that's what we sometimes do. And, and sometimes, rightly, right, we want people's hearts in the right place. But sometimes we contrast being religious 
which we say focuses on outward things with being spiritual, by which we mean something inward. That's actually not the contrast here. The contrast here is between sacrifices and offerings on the one hand, and verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will. The contrast is between sacrifices and obedience. When God himself commands sacrifices, of course, in the Old Testament, when, when sacrifices were actually a part of God's will, you might wonder, well, how can these things be contrasted? How can you contrast sacrifices, which God commanded, with God's will? How can God say to obey is better than sacrifice? Well, there are a few reasons. Uh, first, that the sacrifices, by their nature, actually implied the sinfulness of God's people. Think about it, right? There, there were various kinds of sacrifices, of course, uh, in the Old Testament. But in general, Israel's sacrifices dealt with sin, different aspects of sin. And so to offer sacrifice was to have disobeyed. If Israel obeyed in the first place, sacrifice would have been unnecessary. So God says to obey is better than sacrifice. Better to never have needed the sacrifice right, than to disobey and need it. Second, those sacrifices could not take away sin. And so while sacrifices were for sin, in themselves they could not take away sin, but only pointed to something more important to come. Third, very often when Israel actually did offer those sacrifices, they did so with evil hearts. This is the cry of the prophets. So God says to Israel in Isaiah 1, verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And he goes on in verses 14 and 15, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. That is, their religious observances. God says, I hate them. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you speak, Spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. The problem with Israel's sacrifices was often they, they saw religious observance as a replacement for obedience. But the solution, the solution to that was not simply get your heart in the right place, but but actually obey. Now, does that mean God isn't concerned about the heart? I mean, some of you know that I, it, I, I like to talk about the heart quite a bit, and God is very concerned about the heart. But if your heart is right, it will overflow into obedience. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, says Jesus. From it flows the springs of life, says the book of Proverbs. And so God doesn't want token obedience, nor merely a heart that's in the right place. God wants wholehearted obedience. Even if a heart in the right place were enough, uh, if that were the case, do you really think that makes it easier? Our behavior flows out of our hearts. Our hearts are the root of our sin. And there's always more sin in our hearts than in our actions, not less. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Do you really want to rely on your heart, your inner person, as the basis of your standing with God? I mean, don't, don't you notice your thoughts? Haven't you seen your own desires? 
And so why can you draw near? Not, not because you are simply going through the motions, nor because your heart is in the right place, even though your actions tell a different story, right? Why can you draw near? That brings us to option three, because I'm holy in Jesus. Now think back again to Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Not the one whose life is spotted here and there with acts of devotion. Not the one who feels a certain way about God, but whose life tells a different story. But the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. What's the problem with that? Well, I'll tell you the problem with that. The problem with that is our hands are not clean and our hearts are not pure. So we need someone who can cleanse our hands and purify our hearts, which of course is why, what, what Christ came to do. The sacrifices were but a shadow. Christ is the reality. Uh, the contrast in verses 5 through 9 is, is that Christ came to do what the law could not do. The Father prepared a body for Him that speaks of the incarnation that God took on human flesh. God the Son needed a body if He was to fulfill His role. He needed to become a man to save men. He needed to obey in the body. He needed to suffer in the body. He needed to die in the body. He needed to offer Himself up to the Father in a life of wholehearted obedience that culminated in His sacrifice in the body. His sacrifice was not like those earlier sacrifices. His was not the blood of bulls and goats, but as Paul put it in Acts 20, the blood of God. God the Son, who took on a human body to then shed His blood for our sin. The blood of bulls and goats, as valuable as that might be, was not as valuable as a single person, much less all people. But the blood of the Son of God is the most precious thing in the world because His life was the most precious thing in the world. His life was then given for our sins. He paid our penalty. He satisfied divine justice. He suffered in our place. And He does what those old covenant sacrifices could not do. And so by coming into the world, He does away with that old system by fulfilling it in Himself. When the reality comes, the shadow is done away with. But you may say, you, you just said that to obey is better than sacrifice. What sense does it then make to say that Jesus came to obey by sacrifice? Well, we can put it this way. The, the Old Testament sacrifices were instead of obedience. That was the problem. But Christ's sacrifice was His obedience. He gave His whole life. Paul says it in Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's sacrifice was not instead of His obedience. He obeyed the Father perfectly. His sacrifice was not token obedience so He could keep the rest of His life for Himself. Christ obeyed perfectly and fully even to the point of death. He gave His whole life every moment right up to the cross. His whole life was a life of obedience. He came to do His Father's will as He so often said, to do the will of Him who sent Him. And this is what he did, ultimately and finally, by going to the cross and bearing sin as our sacrifice. And what was the result? The result we see in verse 10. Verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Christ came to do the Father's will, and having accomplished that work, we have been sanctified. Unlike those old covenant sacrifices, which were repeated year after year, Christ offered up himself once for all, and by his sacrifice, grounded in his life of obedience, flowing out of the infinite value of his person as the Son of God, by his sacrifice, we have been sanctified. Now, the word sanctified means to be set apart, to be uh, made special, right? Uh, in, 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 uh, set apart for God. In theology, when we talk about sanctification, we normally mean progressive sanctification, uh, the work of God's Spirit by which we are more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. In progressive sanctification, we are made like Christ, conformed to His character. That's not actually what Hebrews means here. Here the writer is talking about a completed event. We have been sanctified. And the writer means here what is sometimes called positional sanctification, which is much more similar to justification, that through the offering of Christ, since guilt has been removed and we are declared to be holy, set apart for God's purposes. The Father has declared us to be fit for His presence, not because we are good people, we are decidedly not, not because we have made ourselves fit for His presence, we have not and cannot, but because Christ by His blood has removed our guilt, has satisfied God's justice, has cleansed our hands and purified our hearts. And now we stand before the Father as holy. This is why Scripture calls Christians saints. We are holy set apart as God's people, welcomed into His presence. Not because of what we've done, not because our heart's in the right place, but because we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Why can you draw near, right? Not because you've done the right things, not because your heart is in the right place, but only if you are holy through faith in the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from all sin. <clears throat> you know, I should say that when, you know, when we are cleansed of our sin and declared holy in Jesus, that even our sacrifices, of course, become a delight to our Father. Uh, Psalm 51, uh, David says that God will not delight in sacrifices, but he asks God to cleanse him with hyssop, and that is the sprinkling with the blood of the sacrifice and uh, representing, of course, the blood of Jesus to create in him a clean heart. And then in the last verse of the psalm, he says, then you will delight in right sacrifices. Once we've been made right with our Father through Jesus, even our sacrifices become pleasing to him. See, God wants wholehearted obedience that leads to sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. And so the exhortation to us becomes, Christ offered his body a sacrifice for our sins, that we might draw near to the Father as His holy children. Now you offer your body as a living sacrifice. And so the commission uh, for this morning comes from Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.